Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. The ambulance whizzed him off to the hospital. His mom kept him on life support for four days, and then he died. You know, I had gotten questioned that day, taken down to the police station, released, because I wasn't under the influence that morning, right? Like, And from there on, it just became an excuse for me to go hard. Like, harder than... Now I really didn't care. Now I, re- now I had every excuse to numb out, to put any type of substance I could into my body. You know, you got meth, I'll do it. You got heroin, I'll do it. You got acid, especially hallucinogens. Those were the best because I could go on these long trips and not have to think about what's going on in the real world. And and so I started getting into trouble, a lot of trouble. I started finding my way into uh, holding cells, jail cells, juvenile court. Finally, I was sentenced to one year in juvenile hall because I had accumulated a bunch of crimes within three months or four months after the car accident. And on top of that, a vehicular manslaughter charge without gross negligence. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblasting Game, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend Pej. Pej was born in Germany, but raised in Salt Lake City, where he always felt different due to his skin color and being Persian. In his youth, he was bullied and encountered verbal, physical, and mental abuse within his home. Pej began experimenting with alcohol at six years old and experienced his first blackout at age 12. At 17, Pej was hungover driving his friends to school when he had a fatal car accident causing the death of a young teenager riding his bike to school. The event caused Pej to go off the deep end, drowning his guilt, shame, and sadness with drugs and alcohol. Pej was later incarcerated as a juvenile and spent time in the psych portion of the facility as he was deemed a danger to his own life. After he was released, he became worse, dealing drugs and using excessively. By age 35, he'd experienced jail, institutions, homelessness, and near death. He finally threw up the white flag and asked for help. Pej now uses his experiences to help others through his work as an interventionist, recovery coach, and the creator of multiple sober communities. Oh, Pej, so good. So, so, so good. Pej has such an amazing story. It's a wild story. Trauma and you know, drug dealing and and culture. And I mean, just so many aspects of his story come into play. And he talked about all of them. It was really, really great to also hear about how he has helped other Persian families to move through some cultural barriers to recovery, to sobriety. And I think that's so important that we're talking about that because recovery and sobriety should be available to anyone and everyone. And sometimes we need a little extra help understanding one another. So I appreciated that. And I thought that was a really great additional piece of the story that we got to hear. Hold on to your seats. This is gnarly and uh, it ends well. And Pej is just a beautiful part of our recovery community who's reaching out and helping others and ultimately makes a commitment to help people. So you will hear all about that in this episode. So without further ado, I give you Pej. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Yay! Hush! Thank you for being here. What a privilege to be on here. Thank you for thinking of me. Absolutely. So exciting. So exciting. So let's start with how long are you clean and sober? So I am 14 years and in June will be 15 years. So we're about what, two, three months out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, uh, is that like the craziest thing ever that 14, you've been clean and sober 14 years, nights and weekends? I mean, I, I love sobriety. I, you know, I think it was a bigger deal in the first few years, but like the longer mm-hmm. I'm sober, I, you know, I enjoy it. I mean, it just, it's nice to be sober. So yeah, it's kind of a trip to think like, like, wow, how fast 15 years yeah. has already come up, but, but it's amazing. So uh, most of us drank and use because it made us, it did a job for us, right? We hired alcohol to do a job for us. It, it, you know, was our friend, our companion. It made us feel like we fit in. It eased our anxieties, all those things, right? And for me, I learned about alcohol very, very early. I think that's the case for you too in your home. What was it like growing up? I know you were born in Germany. How did you, what was your first introduction to alcohol and how did you get to Salt Lake City? Yeah. Well, I was in Germany from the from the day I was born up until I was five years old. And my dad wasn't like an alcoholic drinker. He would mostly drink, you know, just recreationally. Okay. He had a friend I remember named Mr. Wagner. And they would like take shots of cognac and sometimes drink beer. Obviously, it was Germany. So like beer is just... Yeah. It's like a household item. So he had it around. And I do recall taking sips. But that was like my introduction to alcohol was taking sips at a very young age. But it wasn't like I was drinking regularly until 12 years old. And that's where... And even then, it wasn't regular. It was basically being at a Persian wedding and seeing a lot of people drinking and being festive and dancing and and um, and not finishing all their alcohol. So, you know, that's where I, I got my hands on it and like really got drunk. What did your dad or mom do that brought you from Germany to the United States? Well, my parents met in Germany. So my dad was a food scientist, a microbiologist and a virologist. And he was originally in school in Germany. And that's where he met my mom, who was also in school. We wanted to, they they were kind of on the fence with, my mom wanted to possibly move us to Iran. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sister's uh, four years younger than me. And my dad and mom also talked about the possibility of moving to the United States. So we went to Iran when I was four and a half, my mom, my sister, and I, and stayed there for like six months. And then when we got back to Germany, mom and dad basically came to the conclusion that the United States, the land of the opportunity was the place to come. And so we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, (laughs) I believe during that time, this was like the mid 70s. So you know, there was a movement of Iranians that had migrated that way. And by them coming out that way, uh, you know, we were amongst many other Persians, Iranians in in Utah. And that's just kind of how we, we, we found, you know, that like refuge, like we got, basically we, they bought a house. And I remember like, we must've got their perfect timing because 
it was my first day of kindergarten, like shortly after we arrived. And so I was growing up in Utah as a young, brown-skinned uh, Iranian boy amongst Muslim parents, if you will, amongst many, many Mormons. Like that's pretty much mm-hmm. the, it was primarily Mormon American, white Americans. So yeah, culture shock, if you will. Yeah, it's, uh, that's quite, it's quite an interesting chain of events, right? Where the like, the land of the free. We're going to go to America. Where should we go? Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. Mind you, I only knew I only knew how to speak German at the time because that's what I was learning in preschool out there. Right. And watching on television. So then I come into a community where people are speaking English. And so I went from German to English. And then also my mother was insisting that we speak Farsi within the house. So <laughs> German kind of went out the window and I learned Farsi and and English, like all at once. Wow. Wow. So that must have highlighted feeling very different. From the gate. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything about it, right? Everything about, I mean, look, you think about it, like you, if you see the average Persian person, like (laughs) usually you think, okay, like olive skin with dark hair and you never really know what they are. Like, are they Middle Eastern? Are they Italian? But like, for some reason, God struck me dark, and I don't know why, but like I got this nice year-round tan, you know, which was yep. kind of cool. Like there were some people that really like admired my skin, yeah. But then there's some people that would like make fun of it, you know. And then, based off of my nationality and my skin color, I definitely was the ones that would be bullies or the ones that had a learned behavior or they were prejudiced, you know. Like you have to understand, this was the late mid to late seventies, so during that time diplomatically between the United States and and Iran, there was a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. There was uh, people that were yep. taken hostage there. And so who was suffering the repercussions? I was, you know, almost immediately. Like people were saying like, you're that Iranian kid and blah, 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 and pushing me and starting fights with me. So the bullying started at a very young age and I felt very, very uncomfortable in my skin. Interesting that in Germany, which is also a very Caucasian place, you didn't feel that way. I didn't feel that way because I was just so young. You know, it's like, mm. when I mean, come on, let's be real. Preschoolers, when you see them amongst yeah. each other, it doesn't matter what color they are. They're so young and so new to the world. It's like they just kind of blend. And not to say like I wasn't blending at a young age in Utah. I think it was more into my elementary, you know, the, kind of like the the higher grades where I started hearing people with an opinion, hearing mm-hmm. from people with an opinion. What was it like in your home and with your parents? What was, did you grow up in a happy home? Did it, did going home feel like safety to you? I grew up in somewhat of a happy home. My mother was a very loving mother. My father was a very loving father, but my father also had anger issues. You can, you knew when dad was happy and you knew when he wasn't happy. When he was jolly and laughing and chipper and all that, he was a joy to be around. But when he was angry, he expressed himself with a loud voice, sometimes mm-hmm. with his hands, sometimes with objects. So, you know, the when he would fly off the handle, like you knew it. And it was embarrassing because sometimes he'd go places with him and he would express that anger towards people in public. So the house wasn't, it wasn't uncomfortable. There was a lot of love, but there were days. There were just days when, when, when shit would hit the fan, like, you know that the violence was within the house. There was there was some turmoil here and there that it was being transmitted onto me and and kind of making me become like a a mini carbon copy of my dad. Would it be fair to say that it felt unpredictable? Sometimes it was unpredictable, but sometimes it was it was 
extremely predictable. It was unpredictably predictable. Like you never knew when it was going to happen, but you knew it was going to happen. Right, right. But, you know, it was something that you just got used to. That you said that made you into a carbon copy of that. So you struggled with anger issues as well. We have to understand when you're getting bullied in school and then you come home and there's anger within the home, you're in pretty much in fight or flight. Like you're just wanting to fight yeah, like, or argue or take it out on someone. So I watched my dad hit my mom once and I remember seeing the look in her eyes and her begging him to not do it in front of me. Yeah. Um, and then I watched him hit me a lot. And then my little sister saw that. And there was times that I would take my frustrations out on my sister, my anger. And then also, you know, like, as I was growing up in Utah, um, there was one kid that beat me up so bad in the seventh grade that I had uh, braces in my mouth and he knocked me out. He challenged me to a fight and I told him, challenge taken, but it wasn't going to happen in the school. We decided yes. to take it behind this Mormon church where people were known to take a fight back there where it's not going to get broken up. And so I went back there to wait for him and um, and this kid just pulverized me. I mean, he came out of nowhere knocked me out cold off one punch and then stomped on my mouth to where my braces were caught into my gums. You know, I was bludgeoned and beaten and the whole school saw that. I was totally humiliated. So I just like, I made this vow within myself that I'll never let somebody harm me or humiliate Mm -hmm. me like that again. And when I got home that night, my mom was totally terrified when she saw my face and how it looked because it was just two big black eyes. And my dad got home and he was angry that I didn't protect myself. So I felt like he was punishing me because the next day he had me out on a ladder painting the side of the house. Um, So I was like seething, you know, the next day I just thought I can't stand that kid. I can't stand my dad. You know, I was, I was just an angry young man. I started to become an angry young man. There was a lot of happiness, you know, there was a lot of happiness when I was growing up, but otherwise like there was also this part of me that was totally angry. Like I would meet kids in school that said that their parents never laid a hand on them. And and I was like thinking, well, that's not in my house. Like we we don't just get hands put on us; we get objects. How so? Did you did you think they weren't normal, or you you weren't normal, or I just thought like that it, it sounded like it. How could that be? Like that doesn't happen mm. in your house. Like it sounded impossible to me. How did you cope with that um, as you got older? What, what were some of the skills that you used? Because we always use some sort of skills to cope with anger, pain, whatever it is, uh, whether they're healthy or not. Well, I don't know that I really coped with it too well. I mean, I, I was blind to my ego. And I believe that the anger stems from ego 100%. It followed me, you know, like in relationships, especially in relationships with friends or friends that are not friends anymore because of my anger issues or women. Early on, I was in a relationship with a, with a woman that we were in our teens. We were in our mid-teens, and there was a lot of alcoholism and violence in her home. Mm-hmm. And then there was violence in my home. And when we would meet, we were either fighting or fucking. Like, it's, it was like, yeah. we were just, we would go at it. And she would she would be violent with me. And, and so, and this is the only woman I've ever put hands on. I'd get violent back. Like, if we were fighting, we definitely, I believe what was happening within the home was happening within our relationship, too. Yep just kind of like transferring into that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'll say I, I, the way that I coped with the anger definitely was to get high. Yeah. I started getting high at a very young age too. Besides drinking, you know, I was, um, I was huffing gas at the age of 12. It was, you know, like when you're in, in junior high school and you're curious and people start talking about things to get high off of, like 
glue or mm-hmm. white out or things mm-hmm. like that. So like we tried that stuff and it, it didn't suffice. Like it, it, I was like, you know, but for, I don't know how I caught wind of gasoline, but somehow or another, I just remember it was a hot summer day. I went into a shed after mowing lawns because that's what I was doing to make some money. And then I started huffing gas. And and it, it, I remember like it, it gave me this out-of-body experience to where I kind of felt like everything, I have all the answers to the world now. Mm. There was these pattern-like effects that would happen within my head. And it took me out of right here, right now. You know? And yep. so coping, I believe that I was coping early on by seeking substances or just being angry because angry became sort of like a drug, you know, like I would get high off of flying off the handle. This is some, this is all I knew. And rage actually releases endorphins. So it's actually there, you know, people who rage actually get a, a hit from that. Sure. A a release and uh, something I absolutely relate to because I, I struggled with real rage. And when I learned that, I was like, that makes sense because there was something about, there is a release letting the, the fire out. When you started, so you, that was your first use. How did it progress from there? Well, you know, being in Utah around a lot of goody two-shoe Mormons that don't even cuss and don't even drink caffeine. Like the, it's like everybody's, they were so straight edge and being an outcast and growing up there, I started gravitating towards people that felt like they were different like me. There was only, there's just a select few. And once again, we'd end up behind the Mormon church because that was the place to go where you weren't in this, like in view of the the school and you could go back there. And and somebody happened to have some weed and it was like, they called it Christmas tree bud. And I remember looking at it and it looked like a little Christmas tree and, and we started (laughs) to smoke it. And like, I'm sure that I wasn't doing it right because like they, I, w- I didn't feel like I was high. They told me like, you have to hit it until your throat hurts. And, mm-hmm. and so like I did it a few more times and then I started to get high. So like yeah. weed was, was definitely something that I did from a very young age, started getting into a little bit of trouble in Utah. Um, I, my mom was trying to keep me away from certain types of friends, like the mm-hmm. so-called friends that were bad influences for me. But, but we ended up moving out to California when I was 15. It was like, uh, my dreams had come true because I've always wanted to live in California, right? Like growing up in Utah, being that it would be so cold sometimes and so snowy and rainy and slushy and all that. We'd come to Utah in January, I mean, to California in January to visit family. Mm. And when we were, when we would visit, I just think like it's January and the sun's out. Like I could tan at the beach. Like mm-hmm. this is unheard of. Like dad, why, why don't we move out of here? So, so we moved to California. I was 15. It was summertime and my dad said we were moving to LA. He must've thought the whole state of California was LA because we didn't move to LA. We moved to the big old city of Costa Mesa. And, and, but for me, like anything, still, out, yeah. anything outside of Utah, like it's not that far yeah, from LA. Yeah. All right. So, so I, I'm, I'm now 15 and almost immediately I got a job at McDonald's on Harbor Boulevard and I was flipping burgers with this guy his name was Carlos, and and he he's he was like this Mexican dude. He's like, "Are you new in town?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm new in town." He goes, "You smoke weed?" I go, "Yeah, I smoke weed." He goes, "You drink?" I'm like, "I drink." Yeah, yeah. He goes, "All right, I'll take you to this place after work. We can go have some fun." I'm like, "Hell yeah, let's do it!" And he took me to this place uh, at the end of Harbor Boulevard um, called the Motor Inn. It was like this really <laughs> dingy, shady like motel, you know, very yeah. gray like. 
just looked like there was like a dark cloud over this place, right? Right, right, right. And he told me to sit on these stairs and he'd be right back. And he went up in this room and I watched him go in the room. And I remember when when he he wasn't coming back or it seemed like he wasn't coming back. I went and banged on the door. Some lady answered the door and she was toothless. She was holding a crying baby. And oh. there was another kid playing in the front room. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, if, is Carlos here? And she goes, oh, yes. Well, he's back there in the kitchen. And like you couldn't see the kitchen from the front because there was clothes drawn between. So you, I'm sure you can imagine like this scene, the scenario, right? Oh, yeah. So she goes, you can just go back there. And I went back there. And when I walked back there, I saw a mound of some white glistening powdery stuff on this table. And Carlos is back there. And the next thing you know, I'm drinking, I'm smoking. And 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 I'm thinking like, oh, shit, like it's late. Like I got to get home. Like I, how am I going to get into my house without my parents waking up? So I went home and, and uh, like a ninja in the night, like I climbed up this tree, went into my bedroom window quietly thinking like they're not going to wake up. And the second I turned on the light because I couldn't see where I was going, my mom was sitting in my bed wide awake. And she just looked at my eyes and said, your eyes are red. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Wait, wait till your dad deals with you tomorrow morning. Oh, God. So it was that. And I'm, I'm assuming that it was crystal meth on the. I think it was cocaine. I'm, was I'm co- pretty sure it was coke because at the time, like, I don't know. I mean, it looked very white and powdery. And, and so I'm, I'm going to say that it was probably cocaine. Did you when you got home? So. Your mom's sitting in the bed. You're 15. You've just moved there. Right. Dad's going to either dad's going to find out. So how, how what's the next step here? Like did, did So the next day the next day they sat me down and they had a nice little come to Jesus conversation with me. That's probably better than you were expecting. Well, this is what they said. Okay. We've, moved, we've moved to the wrong part of town. Oh. Uh you have a lot of potential. You know in the, in in the big book, in the doctor's opinion, it says frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices, right? So like they had that that conversation, mm-hmm. the, the potential conversation. You have so yes. much potential. You were a star swimmer in Utah. You were going to go to the Olympics. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? Who are you hanging out with? We've moved to the wrong part of town and uh, we need to take you and your sister to a different school for a better education. So they transferred me to a different school. And um, at this time, like I, I turned 16 and you got to understand like 16, this is like... The era, like like that. This is the time when all the movies that we watched. Like I don't know how old you are, but like during my time, like the movie Risky Business with Tom Cruise was like awesome, and it portrayed like it basically displayed what a what a party at somebody's mm-hmm. house is like. And now we're actually going to these things, right? Yeah. And immediately, with I mean, I gravitate right towards two people: Amir and Omid. Omid was Persian. Amir was Indian. And Omid. In our language, Omid means hope. There was no fucking hope for Omid. Like this, this kid was like he was the only advantage to to hanging out with Omid was that he had a car, mm-hmm. he had this Nissan Sentra that was like cherry red that was lowered. We would bump the tunes. It was awesome, right? And and we would stop at liquor stores. We would uh, I would find some scrub that was walking in mm-hmm. and ask him like, if I give you some money, like, will you buy me some cigarettes and some liquor? Yep. And sure enough, they would do that. So like, I didn't discriminate on what the liquor was. But like we'd go to these parties and and party hard. Now Omid's dad also worked in the hotel business, so he worked long hours. And sometimes when we were at Omid's house, Omid would snoop around the room and find things. And he would he once found a uh, jar of cocaine. And uh, hmm, good find. He's like, this is my dad's coke, and let's. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the shit that they talked about in health class. That if you do this stuff one time, one, one time. time. Yep. You you could probably become addicted. I remember they said that they used to put it in Coca-Cola to make people like right. more drawn to it, right? So 
he laid it out in front of me and I thought to myself, well, here we go. I just yep, dove yep. into that. I dove right into it. I mean, it was instant euphoria. I felt like the clouds had parted and the, and the gods from above had just like shown themselves. And and I remember it's really weird. Like during that time, he he learned from his dad's dealer how to rock it up. So now like within hmm. a few weeks, like we were... Wait, how did he have access to his dad's dealer? He I, suddenly Omid like was going straight to his dad's dealer. He, his dad and him were very interesting people. Okay, okay. You know, so there's were, something. They were. I, I come to find that they were actually using together too. Like yeah. after over yeah. a period of time, that's kind of how we knew where the drugs were. But he learned how to rock it up, and now next thing you know, we're we're freebasing cocaine. Two 16 year olds. It's this isn't normal. Like for two 16 year olds to be cracked out. I mean. You it it depends, right? Like like the only normal I know is for sixteen to be doing like if I told you my sixteen, it would sound the same. And so I learned that that's not normal at sixteen, right? It's I feel like it just depends on for many of us who right. are sober, right? Like our normal, we we were never going to be those straight edge kids. We were never absolutely not. I was that, that was, was never going to happen. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. Like there's no way. And we were never going to, we were never just going to power through all the feelings Mm -hmm. of feeling different, of, you know, the violence, the anger, all those things. None of us had the skills at 16 to handle that. And so I don't know about you, but for me, the only answer was to find something to numb those or to end my life. Yes, most definitely. And you know, uh, it's a trip to think like, there was always this little voice in my head, which would I would say is my conscience, right? Like telling me like, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing this. Like this is getting out of hand or you shouldn't even do it at all. But but like there was the other side of me that was, it was the ego. It was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Leading into my 17th year of life, I was already partying with Omid, with Amir, going to all the high school parties. And when one morning I was, I had party the night before. So one morning... I was really excited because I just had gotten this car that my dad gave me. I was going to pick up all my friends and my sister was going to come with me too. And my girlfriend was going to be picked up along the way. So I'm just so excited to go to school. I was a little bit hungover that morning. I remember a little foggy. and But but the excitement was like, it just took me out of myself to where one by one, I picked everybody up. And as we're driving to school, it had rained the night before. So the streets were wet. And we're rolling up the street. The music's blaring. The windows are down. You can smell the lemon trees in the air. It's like just a perfect October morning. We're just going to school. And out of nowhere, some kid, 14-year-old kid, darted out in the street on his bicycle right in front of my car. And I couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. And the kid's body and bicycle went over the hood of my car into the windshield. The windshield shattered and my car crashed into this minivan. And like the kid's body was flung over the top of the minivan headfirst into the ground. And like my, my whole world went in slow motion. I got out of the car. I looked around. I saw this wreckage in my car. Everybody in my car, the, the people in the front seat had, and myself had like blood coming down our faces because of the windshield chattering, right? Yeah. I could taste broken pieces of blood and glass in my mouth. And and uh, the, the ambulance came, the police came, and the ambulance whizzed him off to the hospital. His mom kept him on life support for four days, and then he died. You know, I had gotten questioned that day, taken down to the police station, released because I wasn't under the influence that morning. Right. Like and from there on, it just became an excuse for me to go hard, like harder than now. I really didn't care. 
Now I re- now I had every excuse to numb out, to put any type of substance I could into my body. You know, you got meth, I'll do it. You got heroin, I'll do it. You got acid, especially hallucinogens. Those were the best because I could go on these long trips and not have to think about what's going on in the real world. And and so I started getting into trouble, a lot of trouble. I started finding my way into uh, holding cells, jail cells, juvenile court. Finally, I was sentenced to one year in juvenile hall because I had accumulated a bunch of crimes within three months or four months after the car accident. And on top of that, a vehicular manslaughter charge without gross negligence. So that car accident, they found... So it's vehicular manslaughter. If you hit somebody Mm -hmm. and it's a complete accident, does that count? Was that situation... It was a complete accident. You weren't under... It was a complete accident. I was charged with vehicular manslaughter without gross negligence. If it, if it was with gross negligence, it would mean I was under the influence. Yeah. They wanted to blame somebody. Okay. Because I had a car that was a Volkswagen bug, 71 Beetle, packed with all my friends. They wanted to say, since the music was loud, it was distracting. I should have never had six people in the car. I was going at uh, too, too high of a speed um, before the intersection to where I didn't even give myself enough time to to hit the brakes. Mind you, the the streets were slick because it had rained the night before. And this case went from the time I was 17. So what ended up happening six years later was percentages of fault were put on each person. Like I had, I I believe it was like 40%. And then the kid had 10% because he wasn't supposed to be riding his bike, like darting out in the middle of the street. And then on top of that, the city uh, was put to blame for... This stop sign that when the car rolled through through the intersection, they were basically blamed for the fact that the stop sign was obstructed by a tree. So I couldn't have seen the stop sign anyway. I was just driving. So that's what they charged me for as an adolescent. But the case went well into my young adulthood. Do you remember the moment that they told you that he was removed from life support? I do remember. And it was... uh, gut-wrenching. I just thought to myself, I can't imagine what this mom is feeling. I remember thinking, why me? Like, this was the second time in my life that the entire student body viewed me in a certain way. The one time when the kid beat me up in front of the whole school behind that church, everybody saw that. At least in my mind, everybody saw that or, or heard about it or knew about it. This time I thought, why me? Like, out of all the fucking kids in this school, this had to happen to, to me. And it was such an innocent day. Like the poor kid, he was just riding his bike to school. He didn't know he was going to die four days later. He, it was blackout for him, gone just like that, right? How do you process your emotions when you catch wind of that? It's one of the reasons I went hard. I was like, I had to just get fucking high as fuck. Like, I don't know how to, how to deal with this. Did anyone ask you or like when... What was the support or the reaction that you received, maybe even from close friends and family? Was there any support for you? There was a ton of support from family. There was a ton of support from friends. But there was also people in the community, some of them in my school, that would they were just assholes. Like They would draw pictures of a stop sign and put it into my locker and say, next time, make sure you stop. Or... There was some kids that would come up to me on the street or even in the school parking lot and say, aren't you the kid that killed that kid on the bike? So now I'm being labeled as like a killer, yeah. not a right. person that had an accident, right? Right. I mean, it was 
It was a really hard time. I mean, come on, how much more traumatic of an experience could a person have? You know, like that's some fucking trauma right there. And then I get locked up for it too. Part of that was my fault because of the things that I was doing that started to accumulate on top of the vehicular manslaughter charge, like trespassing, like assault and battery, because I was fighting people. I was I became a fighter, a major fighter. It was really hard too. Like when I when I was locked up in there for a few months, I I started to experience the gang life because you'd hear mm-hmm. a lot of these different yeah. types of people that were teenagers that were already they were already part of some street gang. And so now I'm experiencing bullying in a whole different way. I had to hold my own. When I first got in there, I got transferred because I guess they thought I was a danger to myself. I had a little meltdown. I got transferred to like the psych portion of this juvenile detention facility. They called it Unit L, where there was things that I saw there that I could never erase from my mind. Really bad shit. They put me on suicide watch for a little bit. They, you know, so you have to like be in your cell with no shoelaces in your shoes. Yep. and into that party. <laughs> even your pants, like you, they, they regulate everything so that you don't hang yourself. And, and so I was in there for a while and then I was begging and pleading to my mom to do whatever she could to get me out or at least transferred to a different unit, which over a period of time, then they transferred me to another unit. I remember thinking as an adolescent kid, as a 17-year-old kid, that if these motherfuckers put these people in here and think that they're disciplining us, they got another thing coming. They're basically manufacturing little criminals that that are going to come out of here and think that they're a fucking horde because they're already they're already getting locked up like they're big homies. And and I didn't I didn't have that mentality where I thought like I'm a gangbanger. I'm a you know none of that. Like it was more like fuck the system, fuck the police, fuck like that. And obviously during that time too, when you're listening to like NWA and Easy E. Yeah, you just have that mentality. To, to, it was like crim, my criminal-minded lifestyle was starting to take shape and form. And um, and when I got out, the thing that really messed with me, just it really messed with me, is my parents were going through a divorce, and I did not want that to happen. As dysfunctional as my family system was, I did not want to be the kid of divorced parents. I'm 18 now. Like I would try to live at my mom's or live at my dad's, back and forth, back and forth. And one day, I got in my dad's face, and and he because he. I told him, you're never going to put your hands on me again. It happened all my life, but not today. Uh, mind you, like I'm on steroids, so I had mood swings. I had a yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that, that day, he he pretty much met his match. And I, I put my hands on him. I hit him. I threw him against the wall. And I said, you're never going to abuse me again. It's not going to happen. And I think it scared the shit out of him to the point where he sat me down the next day and said, you're a man now. You're old enough. You can take care of yourself. I'm going to move. And I go, where are you moving? He goes, I'm moving out of the country. I'm moving back to Iran. And he did that. And it like hurt my heart. But part of me was also like, good. So now I was this kid in Orange County that was 18 years old, still wet behind the ears with no home training, no, no guidance from any male figure. And what do you think I did? I had this full-blown addiction and, and alcoholism that was already there. So I just started to sell drugs. I tried to work in the workplace, but I couldn't do it. Like, it was too much. I tried to get two jobs to be able to pay for my apartment that I was living with a friend and we were actively using. And I just said, fuck this. Like I, I might as well just sell drugs to nurture my habit. And and that's what I became a full-blown drug dealer. And it just escalated. Like I'm talking at first, it was just selling lots of weed, but then it became selling 
lots of other drugs, you know, straight up drugstore cowboy. Like I'm talking, and the rave scene was getting hot. Like it was mm -hmm. starting in 88, 89, we were going to raves, like just little, just kind of like underground clubs. But by the time it was the 90s, it was fucking on and popping. I'm talking like we ain't going to nightclubs anymore. We are we've graduated. We don't need to go drink with our friends and and get in alcoholic brawls. We're going to go to fucking do some love drugs. Like we're going to go do lots of ecstasy cuz this shit just makes you feel really good. Right. And I, since I already sell drugs, I'm going to sell a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I did exactly that. And you know, I think there's a piece of this I always talk about how like there's one maybe more reason that the dare program doesn't work well. And the reason, in my opinion, is that it misses the fact, the truth, which is that there is a very fun component of what we did. It just didn't last. Right. And it caused all these other problems. But we have to acknowledge, you know, there's some, there's, I'll have conversations with people and they'll start to tell me how, like, everything about drugs now calls bad. Every, mo like, you know, it's the worst thing, all these things. And I'm like, you know, we have being honest, part of being honest is looking at the fact that we did it for a reason. There was enjoyable parts. We had fun times, all these things. And I think that when we can acknowledge that, because what you're describing, it probably was a blast. It was a fucking blast. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I love the effect that was produced by many of the drugs that I used yeah. because, because a wise old timer told me when I was a newcomer in sobriety, he said, Pej, it was a black dude from South Central. He's like, Pej, why do you think you used to do drugs? And I'm like, is, there, is this a trick question? Like, what do you mean, why? He goes, well, how did it make you feel? I'm like, it made me feel fucking really good. And he goes, and you know why you wanted to feel good? I'm like, why? He goes, because you felt bad. <laughs> exactly. Right? So you, if you just listen to like the embodiment of this story, turmoil within the house, violence, yep. anger, car accident, being bullied. Why wouldn't I want something that's going to make me feel elated, right? And by the totally. time I was in my my early 20s, going to raves, like... You're making money? Making making money and using a drug that truly lives up yeah. to, to its name. Pure ecstasy. Like, it, it right. just, it's like it's, magic. It's, you're, you're communing with people. You have... Commu it's like all the things we get in recovery, but it's you know, fueled by this other thing, because that's the only thing we knew how to do at the time. And you know right? what? Like we didn't have friends these days, kids have friends that are overdosing and dying within five seconds because they're doing fentanyl. Like that wasn't <sighs> happening in our community. No, no, it was not. And I well, think that's, that's, I, I do want to stop on that point. I, you and I both work in the addiction field and, yes. and, and I have small my, you know, my husband and I are in recovery and I have small children who are the product of two uh, alcoholics. And, you know, the thing that terrifies me about the way that the world now and the use now is that it's not that way. It's not the way it was, right? Because the way it was, there was some, you had, if you tried something for the first time, it was unlikely that you were going to die, right? You, right. If, if you smoked weed, there was almost zero risk that someone yeah, yeah. put an opiate. If there was cocaine, no one put an opiate in it. You were going to get diarrhea from baby right. laxatives. That's what was going to happen, right? That's so, right. So it wasn't being cut like no, you know, and no. It, and, and if people were cutting drugs back then, it was 
with something that's not going to fucking right. Like, if, you know, like, aspirin. It or, might be exactly some other right. powder or some shit. Some other powder. Right. It was going to be bad, but it wasn't going to be deadly. The situ- right. it, Those were really, really far extended situations when you really got into it. But again, mm-hmm. if you were going to experiment, the risk was addiction. The risk wasn't death with experimentation. And the thing that scares me now that I, I know you see too is there is no room for experimentation anymore. Not anymore. There is no room. There is no leeway. There is it's it's a different game. And I think when we talk about these fun times and these things we were doing, that risk wasn't there for us. Yes. Not like that. Not like it is today. Not like it is today. Absolutely. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, Enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. So you get, you're in the 90s, you're living it up and th- it, you probably feel on top of the world. It's the first time you probably like, fuck it, I don't need you. I don't need any of this. Fuck the Pope. Like all the things, right? You're just that, you're just hitting all the points. What happens? We have to think like, so I remember thinking I had like this egoic conditioned thought process where based off of the movies that I watched and the community that I was part of being a Persian kid, like I surrounded myself with a lot of browns and blacks. Thug life was a way of life because it was really popular during that time. And like, I didn't want to, I mean, I hung out with gang members, but I only hung out with them. Some were very close friends, but like I needed the muscle, right? So right. reason being was because people were after me and I was after people. And so you, you start to get a lot of enemies when you're selling drugs, right? Yeah. And, a lot um, of, a lot of complications. A lot of complications. So I, I remember... I got into okay, so I'm I was very artistic growing up, and I wanted to do something with my art. And during that time, I created something. It was a company called Nodge. So basically, I drew up a bunch of stuff that I thought would be nice on T-shirts because I'd go to Melrose in LA and like go shopping for other people's items during the rave scene. And I'd noticed like if I found like a T-shirt of a marijuana leaf, like a cartoon marijuana leaf smoking itself during that time, it costed $28 for the shirt. I'm like, this is fucking expensive, but this shirt is dope as fuck. Like I would rock this shirt, right? right. 
at the time I, I had an apartment in Orange County in Tustin and I had an apartment in LA in Venice. And so I was between homes slinging dope up there or down here, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And I thought, what if I created my own line? So I created this clothing line called Nodge, which later turned into not just a clothing line. It became, we made surfboards, skateboards, snowboards. And like, I, I had some friends that would funnel drug money, friends and family that would funnel drug money into, into this business. And we all kind of became owners. But in my mind, like the ego was saying like, I, I started this. And everybody else answers to me. So we're going to raves. We started throwing raves. We made all these clothes. We would sell drugs in the raves. We were selling the clothes in stores. I I, I was selling my stuff on Melrose. And then we were selling it on a national level. Mind you, I had no business sense. I never went to school to do business. So I was probably giving out more than I was bringing in. But the ego was just growing and growing and growing. And then we were doing jackings. Like... Uh, once I tanked that business because I started getting into like deep, deeply into methamphetamines to the point where my partners and my cousins and my friends were kind of backing away from me. So I stopped doing meth. I started doing meth when I was 18, stopped doing it when I was 22. And then later on again, I started again where I was starting to transport ice out to Hawaii down my oh pants. Boy. This was before this was <laughs> before 9-11. And Shit. I was not realizing that I'm, a five-hour flight. <laughs> yeah, like you you could triple the profits no and do all this stuff. And I really thought like, yeah. to me, I felt like fucking Scarface. You know, I was yeah. just like, yeah. uh, I would go, the, the way it went down, the people I would meet with there, distributing it. And like, I remember I hadn't started doing meth yet, but I'm just, I'm moving this stuff and it's the most potent form and I don't know anything about it. And I remember getting off the plane, opening up my, my satchel out of my pants and like looking at it. And thinking this shit looks like fucking diamonds, right? And I had this thought. This my conscience said, I wonder how many lives I'm ruining out here in Hawaii mm. with this. And if that's not God trying to tell you something, like I would have these little teeny moments of clarity to where it was as if God was saying, like, and I come to find later on that a couple of years later that ice was a fucking epidemic in Hawaii. Yep. There's tent city, one in eight residents of Hawaii had become addicted to this stuff. And so I realized like, you're part of that problem. Like you created this. Now I, I did those trips for a while and then I stopped doing them because my boy had gotten busted the night before in Honolulu airport. I saw it on the news. I saw him on the news and I was about to go out the next morning on a flight. And I thought, fuck this. I'm not doing this. I had this criminal mindset. I got, I got into a bunch of home invasions, you know, hiring that muscle, providing them with certain drugs and I would orchestrate certain, you know, just like a blueprint of a home of somebody that might be a drug dealer that we don't like. And I did things that I would have been, if, if I had gotten arrested for it, I would have gone to prison for a long time. I really thought I had it going on until I didn't have it going on. I became my own best customer when it came to using drugs. By the time I was in my late 20s, the wreckage was starting to accumulate and I was losing things. I was losing a lot of things. I had lost a car to a loan shark. I had been evicted for the first time from an apartment. My mom moved from Santa Monica back to OC. I tried to go and live with her. And she said that you are allowed to live in my house on one condition, three, three conditions. One is that you have a job. Two is that you are 100% sober. And three is that you do not let your little ex-girlfriend, Kathy, anywhere around the perimeter of this house, let alone on the property. 
So I, I was like, no problem. I can do that. In her eyes, I quit doing drugs. And I, truly, I tried to quit. Like countless main attempts. I truly tried to quit the heavy stuff. But like, I didn't think that weed was my problem and that right, right, right. alcohol was my problem. And I could still do those, but I just need to stay off the meth and the heroin and the coke. <laughs> but, 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 but I ended up uh, hiding Kathy out in this garage that my mom had that was detached from the condo. This long garage in the very back of it. I built a DJ room. I was DJing back there. Suddenly I'm a DJ in the mix. And yeah, yeah, naturally. As we do. Just making music and shit like that. And um, and Kathy's got a little cubby hole and she's living back there and we're tweaking. She got a, she got arrested. She's living in a cubby hole. <laughs> right. She got arrested and then and then she got out and got me arrested. I got the place raided by the Orange County Methamphetamine Task Force. Mm. They thought I was going to be manufacturing meth. And the reality of it was that I was going to be manufacturing meth, but I just hadn't started yet. <laughs> so I hadn't set the cameras up either. And that hence the reason why they actually surrounded the place and ended up, they, you know, they came in the right here. They knew my name. They knew my middle name. They knew my last name. And they took me to jail. So I was locked up again. They took you to jail, but you hadn't started. Well, I had a lot of other things. Like I had other, well, I actually had a lot of meth then too. Okay. I was just going to start cooking it. So, and other things too. So they locked me up. And when I was in juvie, I was introduced to AA by an old man that would come and read the big book to us in a, like kind of like a panel setting. When I was in jail, I was reintroduced to AA. So a seed was planted when I was in juvie and it was a weak seed, but a a seed nonetheless. Like, I think that's where I even took on this whole idea of being an agnostic because the dude was probably reading in the big book, We Agnostics. We Agnostics, yeah. So then when I like go to jail, I slept for so many days that like my monkey was worried about me. He's like, dude, you want to get up and use the restroom or you want to at least like go and uh, like eat something? And I'm like, no, I'm good. But like one day this dude came walking through and he's like, H&I is coming through. And I'm like, what the fuck is H&I? Homies and inmates, like, what do you guys, what's that stand for? And the guy goes, no, dude, hospitals and institutions, get off your rack and come down if you're interested in listening to a message of hope. So I went down and I sat down in like the circular thing of chairs. And I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling it that day, but these two dudes walked in and like they were really well put together. And they came and sat down and they started sharing their stories. It was a panel. I didn't know what a panel was. All I know is they kept saying the words Alcoholics Anonymous. So I believe that the seed from when I was 17 was getting watered, if you will, and still kind of a weak seed, but still like I'm being reintroduced to to recovery. Mm -hmm. I stayed in there for a while. I had this court case that was going on. And then when I got out, my mom wasn't having it. She wasn't letting me come to stay at her house anymore. She took me to this place. It was in uh, Huntington Beach. It was a Persian sober living. And I I thought, okay, like maybe I'll go to this place to make mom happy. And I remember there was this little man. He answered the door and his name was Sia. Sia Mac, right? But we called him Sia. But when he answered the door, he's like, he kind of like looked and sounded like Yoda. He's like, hello, how are you doing today? Uh, welcome to my sober living. We have rules. We have regulations. We have chores. We go to meetings. And I just looked at him. I'm like overwhelmed with all this information. I'm like right. riveting, Mr. Sia, but I'm not interested. So I, I didn't stay at his house. I went to this other dude's house in Costa Mesa, which was my second choice. His name was Dave Regal. God rest his soul. He's no longer with us. But Dave was like one of these AA nuts. He's like, I didn't know what the fuck I was in for. I must have walked in there and had my chest sticking out. But this dude got in my face and just said, you just get out of the jailhouse. I go, yeah. He goes, you keep your jailhouse mentality in the jailhouse. When you're in my house, you go to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every single day. Are we clear? I'm like, yes, sir. And so now I'm thinking, fuck, now I'm sentenced to AA meetings because of Dave Regal, right? 
And yeah. I would go to I'd go to the Newport Club. And back then, like if you went upstairs, they had these leather couches upstairs. Like you could smoke mm-hmm. in the room still back then. I remember being up there and feeling like I will never do this shit. Like I, <laughs> I this is these are just circumstances that got me here. Like I yep. won't share. I ain't ever gonna share in here. Never did either. I identify as Brian if they ask me my name and I'm not a fucking alcoholic and I'm not going to fucking identify as one. So if like, you know how like round Robin, like if it got to you, mm-hmm. they would expect you to share. I'd just be like, just move it right along. No, thanks. Pass. Pass. I'm not going to share. That. I don't know what they're talking about. Don't want to know. I hated the way they sang happy birthday. I thought half the people in that room looked loaded. <laughs> I fucking thought like those people that keep staring at me from the other side of the room probably still they maybe they work with the cops like they're still mm, watching me i had that right. paranoia right and so like i would dip out of the room real quick when they would do their little fucking kumbaya and hold each other's sweaty palms and pray to their higher power i was like i end up being, i'm not part of that fucking circle of friends like no but but i dip out real quick and come back and i get my court card and call it a day and over a period of time my boy Pete told me, he's like, Pej, like, why do you even go to fucking AA? Like, I hate AA too. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I have to go. Like, my probation officer wants me to go. Dave Regal wants me to go. And and so so he said that I could sign my own court card, which I did exactly that. And that took me out of Alcoholics Anonymous. I tried to go to the Art Institute. I was staying at my mom's house. I had worked my way back into her house. Yeah. And she wasn't, she, she just thought like, you're unproductive. You're working a valet job. There's no future in this. Like she thought I was sober. Right. So she took me to the art Institute. I signed up and I had three weeks and I thought I have three weeks to go to the school and I need to fucking sober up because I will tank this shit. I just remember thinking, well, I'm just going to get high one more day. Just one more day. Just one. I had gotten all the probation off my back. It went from weekends to weekdays to daily use constant. And finally um, the night before I was supposed to start school, I thought, you're not sober. Like, you're going to fuck this all up. And I certainly did exactly that. You know, when you're going to college and you get put on academic probation twice, it's a great indicator that you're not in a good headspace and you could possibly be a drug addict or an alcoholic. I tried. I loved the school from what yeah. I remember, right? <laughs> right, right. But I, I always overkilled all my assignments. I ruined everything. And finally, I was... Um, I was let go of that school. I was basically walked off the campus by the dean of students. They said that you, you're not, this isn't the school for you. You're not allowed to come back here. And then my mom caught on to my addiction and she kicked me out. And so I went homeless in Costa Mesa and uh, I was living out of my car and I didn't think I was so bad. I didn't think I was like homeless people that lived in tents or that lived um, on the street. Like I still have a car. Like I thought maybe like an executive homeless. Remember like just that egomaniac with the inferiority complex. Like executive I'm, homeless. I'm, right. Like I'm not like these people that are that fucked right, up. Right, like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I still kind of got it going on. Like my, yeah. Yeah, all my clothes are in the trunk. That's my closet. I stay at so-and-so's house a lot. I don't always sleep in my car, but I sleep in my car. Like when people are tired of my shit. And so I think I was out there for like, if I remember seven months of homelessness, it just happened one day. Like I went to my boy Amir's house to dry out on his couch and I was trying to detox. And my version of detox was don't do meth, don't do heroin, don't do cocaine, but you can smoke and smoke weed and drink. That's not detox. And yet that was that difficult, right? That was that difficult. Like, and yet that was insanely difficult. Well, I wasn't quitting the other stuff anyway. Yeah. I was still getting loaded. Yeah. But I remember like I went for nine days without doing the heavy stuff and just doing those, just smoking and drinking. And I started having 
these little epiphanies, like these moments of clarity, like these aha moments where some people just happen to say some things at the right times, or I had these these moments where I thought, like, remember Pej when you used to go to those meetings, or remember when that dude used to come into juvie? Mm-hmm. Those people talked about sobriety, but what does that even look like? Like what I had no concept of what hundred like a hundred percent of sobriety looked like. And so like I, when I knew I couldn't do it anymore, I tried to work at this art store and I kept going to the bathroom and nodding off in the bathroom. And it just happened. Like one day I had this, this, uh, this idea, like, I don't know where, how the words came out of my mouth. But I went to my boss and I said, I have to go and get recovery. I need to go to rehab. And I never talked like that before. Like that, I'd never been to rehab. I don't know what rehab is, but she, she just goes, go right ahead. And I left, went out to my car. I remember I called my mom Mom at this point was in Al-Anon. I had heard like she was working on herself, but I I didn't know what Al-Anon was. I called her and she was a different mom. The way that she talked to me that day on the phone, she was it was it pierced my heart. She said I was dead to her, and I'm like, "What do they teach you in those classes?" right? And she goes, "You don't understand. Like it hurts my heart to say something like that to someone that I thought was my son, but I don't have my son. Like I haven't had my son since he was an adolescent. This isn't who I was raising. Like, you are a monster. I told you not to call me until you got sober and had one year of sobriety. It's been a lot of months now, but I have good reason to believe you're not sober. If you want to get sober, call this man named Max. And I said, fine. She hung up on me. And I was like, that was rude. So she she gave me the number and I called this dude named Max. And uh, I remember that morning when I called him, I said, like, Mr. Max, my name is Pej. And he goes, how can I help you? And I said, I think I want to get sober. And he's like, you think you want to get sober or you want to get sober? I said, I do want to get sober. And he, uh, so he sent me, he he said, what day do you want to get sober? I said, well, today's Tuesday. How about Friday? Like I still had some shit to finish up, some affairs to attend to and things to get in order. And sure enough, like he led me to this house in Irvine. And I remember that I woke up that morning and went around the corner from that house and used everything I had down to the last drop, down to the last bottle drop, morsel, drug, all of it, everything. I did it all. And I just rolled up to this house and I was loaded out of my mind and knocked on the door. And lo and behold, it was that little Persian Yoda, Sia, from five years before. And I just looked him in his eyes and I'm like, I know you. I know you. Don't I know you? And he goes, I don't know you. I'm like, how do you not know me? Like, didn't you have a house on Beach Boulevard five years ago? Like we stopped by for like yeah. 20 minutes. You showed me it and all this and that. And he goes, oh, I had the house, but I don't know you. And I'm like, how do you not remember this mug? You don't remember I came to your house? He goes, I remember the ones that stay. Mm. Are you ready to come in? And I told him like, I'll come into your house, but on two conditions. Like one is I don't believe in God. So please let's not talk about God. We don't talk about God very much. And two is please don't send me to those AA meetings. I do not want to go to AA. No, we don't go to many meetings. And sure enough, like he lied because we went to two meetings every (laughs) single day. Like that night we were in a meeting, right? So he's sending us to these noon meetings every day. They were called the all to noon meetings. It was just a bunch of crusty old timers. I'd already been in his house for a few weeks and I was Mr. Contempt prior to investigation. Like Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll sit with my arms folded and just assess the room, like just constant inventory taker the way you share what you share about. Like, I just think in my head, like, here he goes again. This motherfucker shares every single day. He's fucking sharing the same shit. I can pretty much recite his ver- his his share for him word for word verbatim. 
And he loves to say like hallelujah on the end of it because the whole room will repeat after him. He thinks it's cute. Or I love when she shares, I, you know, she's like so hot. Like she's fun to look at. This is the only time I can actually like stare at a woman in AA without being a creeper. But I have no idea what she's talking about. And then like one day it happened, like this dude in the back of the room, way in the back of the room. It was after all the birthday shares, everybody was done and there was some time left for sharing. And this dude like started sharing. I'd never heard this guy before. So I was laser focused. I just like zeroed in on this dude. And this dude started busting out with some profound, solution-based, humorous share that just carried so much depth and weight. I felt like his share just like reached into my chest and gripped my heart without my consent. And I thought, oh my God, I started busting out from the bottom of my belly. I had not laughed that hard since I was a little kid. And I thought, that's it. Like, that that spoke to me. That was the language of the heart at its finest. It, it captured Pedge. Like it was basically that seed from when I was 17 that was getting watered when I was 30. Now I'm 36 sitting in, a, in an AA room. The seed was flourishing. It was like blooming, right? Right. And I was so fucking excited for, for to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I was like, I got to go tell Mr. Sia about this. Because at this point, like after a lot of ego battles with me and him. Yeah. We had now formed a friendship. Right. And I just ran back to the house and and I'm like, I'm a grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He goes, what happened to that meeting today? And he goes, I said, some dude shared. I've never heard something like this before. I want to keep going back to that meeting because of that guy. One of the things that CLMAC did in that house, like, okay, look, straight up. He, he ran this house. It was a recovery home. We'll just call it that. He called it a treatment center. It wasn't a licensed residential treatment center. It, fu- it functioned like one. Yeah. There was groups all the time, right? He was in hopes of getting it licensed. He had yeah. a psychologist that would come once a week, and that became my my therapist, right? So all of that was good. Like, that was good. But Sia one day called me on my shit because I lied about wanting to stay 100% sober. I still have this these grand plans of smoking weed. Like, my sister worked in a dispensary, and when, she, when I got out of rehab, I'm going to go smoke with my sister. And he saw right through that and let me have it. And then I lied through my teeth. But later on, when I talked to him in his office, he had me sit down and I, he said, like, tell me about yourself. And I go, what do you want me to tell you? He goes, tell me your life story. I'm like, you have time to hear all this shit? He goes, yeah. So I, like, I laid it all out for him. And he goes, I have an idea. And he wanted to uh, do a psychodrama. Mm. And so he was like very skilled. He went to some S training and, and was just, a, he was good at what he did. So, I mean, he was already like a counselor. So... And my mom wasn't visiting me, which was just hurting my heart because I really loved her and missed her and was really wishing that since I am in a Persian recovery home, like maybe you'll come see your son. Yeah. Everybody else's parents would come see them. All the Armenian kids' parents would come see him, but my my parents, my mom wouldn't come. And finally, like he he my, like he just strategically planned it. He was so calculated. Like he planned it perfectly to where in three weeks we're gonna have a psychodrama for you. I'm like, what is that? He goes, just just hold on and wait. And so three weeks came and that night my mom showed up and it was this group room and there was all these Persians and Armenians and all their family members and all the clients that were in the place. And we were all sitting in the circle and he said, all right, tonight Pej is going to do a psychodrama. He had to do the psychodrama in front of the families? In front of the families and the kids. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Which I didn't know what I was in for. I had no idea, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So he grabs one of the client's 12-year-old kids and lays him on the ground and puts a sheet, like a bed sheet, over his body. Oh, God. And tells me, walk around the room and oh. dims the lights and kind of like 
brought this aura into the room, right? And he's very calmly just sitting on this, on like he's got one knee down. He's like, Pej, tell us about that day. And I'm like, what day? And he said, the day of your, the day when you hit the kid on the bike. And so like, I'm walking around this room and he goes, just walk around and talk about it. And I'm like walking around. He's like, how did it smell like in the air? I'm like, I smelled lemon trees driving. What song was playing on the radio? Brian Adams, Summer of 69. What were you guys laughing about? I don't know what we were laughing about, but we were having, we were gleeful teenagers having a good day just on our way to school, just doing what kids were doing, like what high school kids were doing. Yeah. And he said, all right. Then what happened? And I said, then suddenly this kid just came out in front of my car. And so he like walked me through this process. And here I am trying to get the words out and tears pouring down my eyes. Yeah. I mean, I could have filled a bucket. There was I, the whole room was in tears, right? Especially Persian mothers, right? So yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're just all crying. And I, I remember like looking over at my mom and her face was shaking and there's tears just pouring down her eyes. My sponsor showed up. My sister was there. I mean, this was a, a very powerful moment. Yeah. And then he said, okay, now come over here. Now put your, now get down on one knee and put your hand on top of this. This is, <sighs> this is representing the corpse of the kid that you hit. I'm like, whoa, see ya. Like, don't do this shit to me. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, please don't. He said, it's okay. What was the kid's name? I said, his name was David. He says, tell David how you feel about him losing his life. I said, I'm so sorry. Like my, I'm just shaking. And oh. I, I never, I never imagined. I never wanted that. I, I can't believe this happened to you. I'm so sorry. You lost your life as a result of that car accident. That day. He said, okay, now tell him about your life. Tell him what happened to your life. And I said, my life, I don't have a life. I've never had a life. I don't know what having a life is like. He said, okay, so what do you want to do? Pej? You want to, you want to make a commitment? I said, I mean, yeah, I'll make a commitment. He goes, yeah, seriously, Pej, do you want to make a commitment? I said, yeah, I'll make a commitment. Because what what do you want to commit to? I said, I want to help every single addict, alcoholic of every race, creed, color, and age one day at a time for the rest of my life. And then I like did a double take and I looked at my mom and I looked at my sponsor and I thought, motherfucker, you better fucking really mean what you're saying. Because <laughs> if you fuck this up, you are a fucking loser, right? I mean, at this point, the whole room was, it was so much emotion that was just yep. flowing. And he, he ended the night from there. Like we didn't even carry on with other groups because everyone was just an emotional wreck. And so the next morning when I woke up, I felt like a thousand pounds had been lifted off my back. It was everything I always wanted to be able to let go of this and to keep my commitment and to, to really carry on with what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, and, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but like he he encouraged me to go to school. And I didn't want to go to school. Cause don't you know, like when I went to that community college, you know, I went and I went to the art institute, I failed. Like I fucking, I was always failing. I was a 1.8 grade point average student in high school. How you want me to go to school at the age of 36? And because it was Sia and because I listened to everything he told me and the man never let me down, I went to school. First class was ethics, right? Like I, I was like, <laughs> And my teacher was this Persian lady when she learned about what goes on in this guy's treatment center. Uh-huh. She's like, that's illegal. <laughs> Where is this place? I'm like, you don't want to know. Not the point, not the point. You know, and I went to school and I finished top of my class, 4.0 student, dean's list, all that. Kind of amazing. You know, like I, I never saw those numbers attached to my name. <laughs> right, right, right. But but it makes sense though. Like you get sober, you can pay yep. attention in class, you can finish your assignments and you actually Who perform knew? well on tests, right? Who would have known? So it's really cool that he he did that with you and and for you. You know, David wasn't the only one who lost his life that day. You did too. Absolutely. 
You, know? you want to hear something crazy? Like I, I, I don't really talk. Like I, I speak in AA a lot, and so like I tell minimal parts of my story, but I always bring up the car accident. But this is something that was a trip that happened, and I don't think there's any coincidences. You know, I don't think that me going and meeting Sia a second time happened by accident. Like that spirit of the universe somehow just brings people into your life and shows you things. I had seven years of sobriety. I was speaking at the Wild Bunch meeting in Irvine. You know, after I got done speaking, everybody lined up to come up and thank me. And one guy came up and said, do you remember me? And I looked at him and I'm like, you look familiar. And he goes, remember you used to, used to buy weed off of me in high school? And I'm like, oh yeah, you're fucking Jason. Blah. And then I said, let me see your pinky. You lost your pinky in woodshop class, blah, blah, blah. And so I knew it was him. And he goes, well, check this out, Paige. Like, it's good to see you sober. How many years are you sober? I said, I'm seven years sober. What are you doing here? He goes, I'm 11 months sober. I'm the caretaker of the mother of the kid that you hit on the bike. Oh, I got chills. And then I fucking, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to say. So I got his phone number, but I didn't call him because I was scared. Called my sponsor. I said, do I make amends to this mother? He said, Paige, it was an accident. Like, it was, you know, you don't want to put salt on the wound. It's been a lot of years, like a lot of years. And sure enough, I think eight months later, I was at Trader Joe's just shopping and I turned the corner and saw him and I was going to go up and say what's up to him. But I, I stopped real quick and looked to see he was walking with the mom and she was shopping. She was a little old riddle lady like at this point. And I thought to myself, I mean, come on, man. Like how yeah, there's yeah. just so, so many d- different scenarios that right. happen to where you just like when you're sober and you're aware yeah. And you've yeah. gone through this process of recovery. Yeah. Like things just kind of, the answers are always in, in situations and they don't have to be precise. Like you can kind of like, just see like this had to happen. Right. This needed to happen. Did you go and talk to her? No, I did not. No, 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 I did not. I mean, my ego wanted to go over in there and say, you know, I save a lot of lives and I fucking, I'm a, I'm a recovery guy. And like, I help yeah, yeah. a lot of people and be, as a result, but I, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. It just wasn't my place. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an incredible story. And, and you do now, you know, for fast forward 14 years later, you are often on the front lines with families and, and teens and people who are struggling. And, you know, that commitment that you made in that room that day, from what I can see, you've kept it. Yeah. I had to keep my word. I mean, that became my passion. It's just a way of life. My passion was also in opening sober, sober livings that provide structure for people that come from all walks of life. Some might be treatment hoppers. Some might be out of jail, like straight out of incarceration. Some might be homeless. Some come from well-to-do families and some come from poverty. But either way, if they have addiction or alcoholism or mental health, I wanted to be able to provide a space to be able to teach them everything that Siamak taught me. And um, and a lot of the ideologies and styles of what we do in the homes that I created in LA and Orange County are just that. I work in treatment. I help a lot of people get the help that, or I attempt to help a lot of people get the help that they need. It's what I, it's just a way of life. You know, it's like, I went from being a drug dealer and ruining people's lives to like a person that's trying to educate people on what's out there and what the dangers are and be careful. And if you need help, I'm here to help. Where can people find you? What are the, what are the places? What are the, what's the YouTube channel, the TikTok, you name it. What do we, where can people find it? So on Instagram, I'm drug underscore intervention on YouTube. It's Pej the interventionist. So you can just type in P E J the addiction interventionist on there. Then also in TikTok, it's at Pej intervention. 
I have a website called pejintervention.com. Um, I have some recovery homes. One's called the essence recovery.com. Like the, it's a very structured men's house in Mission Viejo, California. I have another house called Limitless Journey. You can look at both websites. They're all about what we do. I'm opening an, a primary mental health step-down house next week. It's in the works. That's the plan. And soon a place called Venus Recovery, which will be a detox residential. And yeah, I mean, TikTok, YouTube. I think it's really good for people to come on the YouTube and see the guests I've had on Peggy's Recovery Corner. That's another thing. I have a website called Peggy'sRecoveryCorner.com that we just built. It's a podcast that I usually do weekly, and I have people from all walks of life that are in the recovery process from many different forms of recovery, some with addiction to food, porn, sex, gaming, drugs, alcohol, um, everything, you know, and then mental health too. There's a lot of people that are on there. You know, I got to have you on there too. I told you that already. Yeah, yeah. I'm in it. I'm in it to win it. I mean, I look at you, I'm like, Ivy, like heroin user, you'd never think that. What's great. Yeah. I got some good pictures for you. What's, (laughs) what's great is I used to go into juvenile, female juvenile halls and I would wear like, and I would purposefully wear more conservative clothes and they would be like, what the fuck, you know, about blah, blah, blah. I mean, they were just, and, and then I would sit down. I was like, actually, you want to talk about it? Like, let me lay it down for you. And it was so, I remember like, there's this idea of what we look like and what we, you know, we clean up well, we, when we get our shit together, sure. plus I'm old, I'm old now. I was, you know, I got sober 16 years ago. It was a whole different game, but Ashley, you're it's, not old. Uh, I'm aged by, by motherhood. It's a, uh, it's exponential. Okay. That that's understandable. Yes. Yeah. It's the inter it's, it's the internal, but yeah. the, but yeah, it's, just doesn't discriminate. And it's so important for us to be out there talking to people and just so grateful that you have that and you're out there talking to people and sharing about what you're seeing, what's going on, how we can help, what we can do and and using your platform to, to share your story because it's an important one. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.